0: Think with me for a moment about court trials. Maybe some you've heard in the news recently. In our city, we have a trial beginning tomorrow, as you've just heard. The passage we're looking at today from the Gospel of Mark also describes a trial. What would you say are some indications a trial has not been fair? Maybe when it's been rushed or hastily thrown together. Maybe if it's done behind closed doors in some back room, somewhere without witnesses. Maybe if there's false witnesses or testimony that is not corroborated among witnesses. These are usually indications a trial is not fair. And that bothers us, because what we want most from a trial is justice. We want to see a guilty person condemned and an innocent person set free. And when there is consistency between the accused person's actions, whether they are culpable or innocent, and the verdict or sentence they get, we are satisfied. When there isn't consistency between those two things, we are upset. We are either angry that a guilty person has gotten off on a technicality or found a way to beat the system, or we're angry that an innocent person is suffering unjustly They got the short end of the stick. Either way, when justice is not served, we tend to put the blame on the system. That's in part what I hear some people say when they reflect on the trial and subsequent crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He got dealt a bad hand. His friend betrayed him. He was outwitted by shrewd leaders. Too bad he was a good person with wise teachings. But when we look more closely at the trial, we find something altogether different. We see that Jesus was falsely accused and wrongfully convicted. His trial was grossly unjust. And yet, it is abundantly clear that Jesus is not caught in a sick system. He does not see himself as at the mercy of others. In fact, as I hope we'll see in a moment, the situation is quite the opposite. He cooperates with the authorities during his arrest. He de-escalates the situation so as to minimize the collateral damage. And he ultimately supplies the evidence they need that is lacking to convict him. Yes, Jesus may be the one on trial, but he is also the one in control. Even though justice is not served, Jesus is not to be pitied. Today, as we continue our series, The Peter Interviews, we're looking at the book of Mark in the New Testament, which relied heavily on the eyewitness testimony of Peter. Last week, we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he wrestled with God and then resolved to submit to God's plan. Our passage today picks right up at this moment in Mark 14, verses 41 to 42, where Jesus says, The hour has come. Here comes my betrayer. So follow along with me in Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 65. Use your Bible on your phone or in your hand. Words will also be on the screen. I'm going to read a verse or two and make some comments along the way. Mark 14, 43 to 65. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now those three groups listed here comprise the Sanhedrin, or the highest Jewish court of the time. So an arrest warrant has been issued by the Jewish religious leaders, and they've come with armed temple police expecting Jesus to resist. But how do you ensure you arrest the right man in a dark olive tree grove lit by torches? You don't want to get the wrong person and give the right person a chance to escape. Verse 44. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. It wasn't unusual in the first century for a disciple to show honor or affection to for his teacher with a kiss going at once to jesus judas said rabbi and kissed him now john's going to say more about judas next week but suffice it to say this greeting by judas on jesus cheek this kiss of betrayal stings and if you have known the pain of betrayal i want to encourage you jesus knows it too verse 46 the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. John's Gospel records this quasi-courageous yet inaccurate swordsman as Peter, who is likely aiming for something more substantial, the head or the neck. And Luke, the doctor in the group, is the only one who gives the detail, that Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on the servant. Talk about de-escalating a situation. Jesus has no intention of resisting. The swords and clubs are unnecessary. What's more, he will not permit anyone to get hurt in the crossfire. Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me. Let's be real, Jesus says. You know as well as I do, I am rabbi, not rebel. You've had plenty of time to arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Now Jesus has said on at least five separate occasions this exact thing would happen. The disciples are clearly taken by surprise here, but not Jesus. Verses 50 to 52 then everyone deserted him and fled a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following jesus when they seized him he fled naked leaving his garment behind now early church tradition and most scholars agree this young man is our writer mark whose home was likely the location of the last supper the last meal jesus has just shared with his friends If so, it's possible Mark is heading to bed when he gets word of Judas' betrayal, rushes to the garden to warn Jesus, but it's too late. He's seized, but he gets away. No matter, the guards have gotten who they've come for. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and teachers of the law, that's Sanhedrin, came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. Now this is odd. (laughs) This examination is going to happen in the home courtyard of the high priest. After initially fleeing, Peter has doubled back around to watch from a distance. Now I want to pause here before reading verses 55 to 65, because there are a few things we need to know about the Jewish legal system this group of people the sanhedrin was the highest court in israel it had a lot of authority but it could not impose capital punishment since israel is under roman jurisdiction only rome can do that so they need something to convict jesus of to have the situation escalated to the roman authority pontius pilate what's more is that this high court had specific rules and procedures which were to be followed In a moment, we'll see how just about every one of those criteria are not met in Jesus' trial. Let's see if you can pick up on them. Here's how it should have been done. Trials were to take place during the day in the designated courtroom located in the temple. Already were 0 for 2. They were to hear one witness at a time, and if their testimonies differed, even in the trivial details, their evidence was inadmissible and thrown out and false witnesses were to be put to death. And finally, if the verdict included death, the hearing was to extend to at least over two days to give sufficient time to deliberate such an irreversible decision. Now watch how this plays out. Verse 55. The chief priests and the Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death but they did not find any. Wait, aren't trials supposed to be focused on finding the truth based on the evidence, not finding evidence to support your predetermined position? Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days build another not made with human hands. Now, for the record, Jesus did actually say something similar to this, but he wasn't referring to the temple building. He was referring to his physical body. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Frustrated at the incompetence of his staff who can't even get false witnesses to corroborate their stories, the high priest steps up to make sure they ultimately get the conviction they need to pass him off to Pilate by morning then the high priest stood up before them and asked jesus are you not going to answer what is this testimony that these men are bringing against you but jesus remained silent and gave no answer jesus is actually supposed to respond to the charges his silence is causing a deadlock how are they going to use his words against him if he won't speak And time is ticking. Dawn on Friday morning, Good Friday, is coming. they got to push this thing through. All court proceedings must stop at sundown on Friday in order to honor the Jewish Sabbath. And so the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus responds definitively, I am. And then Jesus literally hands... This late-night, backroom, bumbling prosecution, the only piece of evidence they still need to convict him. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him worthy of death. The only sentence Jesus says during this trial is a loaded phrase. It's not apparent to us, but it certainly was to those religious leaders. Look at their reaction. Jesus' words provide the confession they need to pass him off to Pilate for a death sentence. Why? Jesus merges two prophecies here, one from Psalm 110, one from Daniel 7. That when put together unmistakably identify him as the Messiah. He is very clearly distinguishing himself as the one who is equal with God and who will one day judge all nations. Essentially, Jesus is telling the court, while I'm currently being judged by you, the day will come when you will be judged by me. For the Jewish people, God alone had authority to judge. Who does this guy think he is? Any first-century reader would wonder whether Jesus had a death wish with these words. Now, do you see what is going on here? Jesus is clearly enduring an unjust trial. He's betrayed by one of his closest friends. He's falsely accused, and he's submitted to a court hearing where nearly all the criteria for proper procedures are not met. But while this is clearly unjust, Jesus isn't a victim. He's in control. In fact, contrary to the disciples' rash and ineffective resist by lobbing off ears and running away in fear, Jesus remains calm and resolute. And while many of us would have gotten angry and defensive when listening to false witnesses testify against us, Jesus remains silent, and the one time he speaks, he gives clear, compelling evidence they needed but were too incompetent to get from him themselves. Jesus is not only putting up with an unfair system, he seems to be helping it, allowing it. Why? Normally, God is all about justice, isn't he? Well, in a word, love. This is the reason he came. This has been the plan from the beginning. This is what ultimately compels Jesus in the garden to submit to this path, even though it is not an easy one. Just days before this night, when Jesus shares that final meal with his followers, he tells them plainly in Mark ten forty five, the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Meaning Jesus offers us his life in place of ours. If the sinless one dies in our place, we don't have to. Or more accurately, even after we die, we can live. You've heard the verse before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life if we see jesus as a victim of either an unjust system or a capricious god the father he is to be pitied but jesus himself by his own words and actions makes it clear he is no victim the highest court in the land is no match for jesus instead he makes it clear he deliberately and willingly subjects himself to this unfair system out of love. I love Jesus' own words on this, recorded in John ten eighteen. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He's making the intentional choice, the deliberate sacrifice, all because he loves us, and he wants us to experience life both now and after we die. If that's the case, Jesus isn't to be pitied. He's to be praised. If that's the case, the right response isn't "Mm, too bad. He was such a good person. But thank you, thank you for loving me that much that you would die for me. So I want to ask you, if Jesus willingly offers his life for you, have you said yes to that? And if not, Why not? You can do it from your pew or from your pajamas at home. Just say, thank you, God, that you offered your life for mine, willingly out of love for me. I choose to follow you. For those of us who have already said yes to Jesus and received his invitation to real life, this is a good reminder. As with all our close relationships, family or otherwise, it's easy to take one another for granted to minimize the sacrifices others make for us, to fail to communicate our gratitude for the gift that person is to us. In a moment, John's going to lead us in celebrating in communion, and maybe the most appropriate response for you to this passage is to express to God once again how grateful you are for his gift of love. But in celebrating communion... We don't just look back at Jesus' death. We also look ahead to the future when he returns, when the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the Most High, comes on the clouds of heaven. I don't know all that Jesus was thinking when he made that final clinching statement, but it sure seems like he wasn't just thinking about death that awaited him on that cross, but also the life that would be granted him. Because let's face it, if Jesus was going to stay dead, he is to be pitied. This was a tragedy, even if it was a selfless act of love. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless. So is your faith. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Jesus knows When he lays down his life, it will be just days before he takes it up again. He knows what C.S. Lewis calls the deeper magic in the Chronicles of Narnia. He knows, like Harry Potter, that it doesn't end with a bright flash and Hagrid's wails. Jesus knows that death may knock him down, but it will not keep him down. Because Jesus has beaten death at death's own game. He is the lamb who has overcome The angels rightfully sing in Revelation, you are worthy because you were slain and with your blood you purchased people for God. City Church, let's make no mistake, Jesus Christ of Nazareth was not another victim of an unjust system. We need not pity him. Instead, let's give him all the praise he deserves for his sacrificial gift to us. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this reminder from your word. Those swords and clubs weren't needed. Those Jewish leaders botching their prosecution, it didn't have to be done right. You willingly went for us. We thank you. We ask that the reality of your sacrifice for us would be made more clear, more meaningful to us this day and in the days to come as we approach celebrating Good Easter and Good Friday and Easter, we pray in Jesus' name and always for the greater fame of his name. Amen.